I invite you to turn with me to Judges chapter 11. Judges chapter 11, we'll be picking up where we left off last week, and I know he kind of ended in a odd spot, but this was a, a lengthy passage, and I did not have time to, to give it its due in one sermon. So we're looking at part two of this narrative of Jephthah. And so let me briefly remind you uh, what we covered last week. We noted the way Jephthah was despised and rejected by his half-brothers as they drove him uh, out of Gilead. They ensured that he would not receive any portion of their father's inheritance, having a different mother, being surrounded by And yet, when they were being attacked, when they were being surrounded by the Ammonites, the Ammonites encamped against them, they get their army together, and they don't have anyone to lead them in battle. So they offer, we'll make anyone who wants to lead to, uh, this military to be head of our people, head of Gilead. And no one takes the offer. So now they have to go back to Jephthah, who they drove away, and they have to offer him this opportunity to be their head. And we saw in their own self-serving ambitions, we saw the elders of Gilead, uh, Jephthah's half-brothers, there's this self-serving ambition. And yet we can relate to their struggles with pride. We ask that first question in your handout, how often are we guilty of putting our own interests first? What can we learn from Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 7, who gives us that example in Christ. And I encourage you to reflect upon that if you did not do so last week. And then we learned that Jephthah had a, had a questionable background as the son of a prostitute and gathering around himself worthless men, both of those situations being similar to Abimelech, the one who was an anti-judge, the one who, God, who was the opposite of all these other saviors that God had raised up. And yet we also recognize that a person does not have to be defined by the decisions they made in their youth. Many of us would not want to be held accountable for our immaturity when we were younger. And so this led to the second question there in your handout. Does anyone presently possess the level of maturity that they had when they were younger? If, if you would say you do, then you're just simply admitting an immaturity there, right? That you're not, in fact, growing being sanctified. And we also saw Jephthah's thorough knowledge. Uh, He tries to make peace with the king of Ammon. And in doing so, he gives him a history lesson which proves his his knowledge and his belief in Scripture. And so he acknowledges several times, even in, in this morning's passage, the Lord acknowledging his, his belief in the Lord. And so the main idea from Jephthah's narrative, which we did not get to last week, has to do with this commitment that he's about to make. Uh, and the application for us, I think, is that one indication of a believer's maturity, one indication that you are growing in your sanctification, in your salvation, is a willingness to uphold your lawful vows. 
One indication of a believer's maturity is their willingness to uphold their lawful vows. And so we'll get into the details of that by looking at our passage here. But before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this passage. And it is one of the more challenging passages in the book of Judges as we consider what exactly Jephthah did this vow that he made and the response to it. And Lord, it may be even more challenging to think about how that applies to us today. So I pray that you would give us the ability to process this, to think clearly as a congregation, to look into your word with eyes of faith, with hearts that believe, opened by your spirit and that we would be challenged and transformed by this truth. Lord, ultimately, remind us of the gospel. Remind us of the hope that we have in Christ. And help us to see the example of faith in Jephthah's life. So read with me. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. So read with me. Judges chapter 11. Verses 29, and we'll read all the way through 12, 7. Then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and he passed through Gilead and Manasseh and passed on to Mizpah of Gilead. And from Mizpah of Gilead, he passed on to the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord and said, If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, then whatever comes out from the doors of my house to meet me, When I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. So Jephthah crossed over to the Ammonites to fight against them, and the Lord gave them into his hand. And he struck them from Aurora to the neighborhood of Mineth, 20 cities as far as Abel Karamim, the great blow. So the Ammonites were subdued before the people of Israel. Then Jephthah came to his home at Mizpah, and Behold, his daughter came out to meet him with tambourines and with dances. She was his only child. Besides her, he had neither son nor daughter. And as soon as he saw her, he tore his clothes and said, Alas, my daughter, you have brought me very low, and you have become the cause of great trouble to me, for I have opened my mouth to the Lord, and I cannot take back my vow. And she said to him, My father... You have opened your mouth to the Lord, do to me according to what has gone out of your mouth. Now that the Lord has avenged you on your enemies, on the Ammonites. So she said to her father, let this thing be done for me. Leave me alone two months that I may go up and down to the mount, on the mountains and weep for my virginity, I and my companions. So she said, go. Then he sent her away for two months, and she departed, she and her companions, and wept for her virginity on the mountains. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father, who did with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man, and it became a custom in Israel that the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. The men of Ephraim were called to arms, and they crossed to Zaphon and said to Jephthah, Why did you cross over to fight against the Ammonites and did not call us to go with you? We will burn your house over with, 
your house over you with fire. And Jephthah said to them, I and my people had a great dispute with the Ammonites. And when I called you, you did not save me from their hand. And when I saw that you would not save me, I took my life in my hand and crossed over against the Ammonites. And the Lord gave them into my hand. Why then have you come up to me this day to fight against me? Then Jephthah gathered all the men of Gilead and fought with Ephraim. And the men of Gilead struck Ephraim because they said, You are fugitives of Ephraim, you Gileadites, in the midst of Ephraim and Manasseh. And the Gileadites captured the fords of the Jordan against the Ephraimites. And when any of the fugitives of Ephraim said, Let me go over, the men of Gilead said to him, Are you an Ephraimite? When he said no, they said to him, Then say Shibboleth. And he said, Sibboleth. Words of the Jordan, not pronounce it right. Then they seized him and slaughtered him at the fords of the Jordan. At that time, 42,000 of the Ephraimites fell. Jephthah judged Israel six years. Then Jephthah the Gileadite died and was buried in his city in Gilead. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, the majority of the, commentary, of the commentaries and including the best ones, the ones I've referenced oftentimes in these sermons, believe that Jephthah literally sacrificed his only daughter. And just like the nations who offered their children to Molech, they believe Jephthah did the same thing here. And so there's atheists like Voltaire and even the contemporary Richard Dawkins who point to this passage as an example of God condoning wickedness. How could we worship a God who commends someone like Jephthah, who could do something like this? So the question is, how did Jephthah, or did Jephthah, in fact, kill his daughter? And to answer that question, we have to consider the commitment he made. So if you're following along, you like to fill in the, the blanks. You have Jephthah's character, was what we looked at last week. Now we're looking at Jephthah's commitment. In verses 29 through 40. Jephthah's commitment. So we've begun by looking at his character and we've had, we have a positive assessment of that. We come down on the side of, of, of thinking positively about Jephthah and so we can come to this passage hopefully without some preconceived notion of his guilt. But since the 12th century, um, the leading Jewish scholars have interpreted this sacrifice in a figurative way. Since the 12th century. And some of the reformers embraced a view that this sacrifice was figurative. Uh, William Perkins being an example. The poet John Milton, author of Paradise Lost. This uh, um, Jonathan Edwards. They all take a, a figurative approach to this. Um, a contemporary would be Joel Beakey. So if you think that he's already... Uh, set up for failure, if you, if you think poorly about Jephthah's character, then you come to this likely prepared to, to interpret it in the worst possible way. But the first thing you come to is, is challenging, though, because in verse 29, we read, then the Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah. The Spirit of the Lord was upon Jephthah, and once again, we see the influence of the, the Spirit of the Lord. We've seen that several times in the book of Judges. Never once has it been interpreted negatively. 
as if the Spirit of the Lord was going to use him to do some wickedness. And so I don't believe that the Holy Spirit performed identical functions under the Old Covenant as he does under the New. Uh, A look at Ezekiel 36 seems to suggest that there is a, a, a more active role in the hearts of the elect, that the Spirit works, and he puts his Spirit in our hearts. Ezekiel 36, verses 26 through 27. However, whenever we see the Spirit of the Lord dwelling or descending upon someone in the Old Testament, I don't believe it's interpreted negatively. It's never interpreted as a negative event or condemned. Right? In fact, it seems to imply that the Lord is accomplishing his will through that individual. In fact, for Saul, you'll see the Spirit depart him before he begins to really mess up. Right? So, that, so the idea here is that when the Spirit comes upon someone, we're to think, this is God working out his sovereign will in, this, in the life of this individual. And when that spirit departs, as does happen on occasion in the Old Testament, that that person is, is, is beginning to fall away, beginning to turn away from the Lord. So how do you understand what happens here with Jephthah? The spirit of the Lord comes upon him, And the Lord is, is not absent or working against Jephthah in any way. We have to at least begin there. This is, this is the Lord doing a work. And the first thing Jephthah does, well, he, he goes out, he passes through Gilead and Manasseh, passes on to Mizpah of Gilead, and from Mizpah of Gilead, he passes on to the Ammonites. So as he's going through these regions, he's more than likely, it's not in the text, but it's, it would be implied that he's gathering together the military. And then you come to verse 30. And Jephthah made a vow to the Lord. And so although the the Lord does grant him victory over Ammon, it is the vow that becomes the focus of this passage. You don't really hear much about the war, much about the victory. It becomes this vow. And it leads Joel Beakey to ask an important question. He says, would the Spirit inspire him to make a vow that is so clearly contradictory to the Spirit's own revealed Scripture. And so let's inspect this vow that he makes. If you will give the Ammonites into my hand, verse 31, then whatever comes out from the door of my house to meet me when I return in peace from the Ammonites shall be the Lord's, and I will offer it up for a burnt offering. Now, if you have footnotes in your ESV translation, you'll see there that whatever could be whoever, and it could be him or her even. So what would Jephthah expect to run out of his doors to meet him? Whatever or whoever he, she, or it was, he expected to offer it up for a burnt offering. So the typical sacrificial animal it's possible that those may have roamed in like the courtyard of, of a house, um, out the door. They certainly were not the kinds of animals that would run out the doors to greet you when you come home. You just don't see sheep doing that. They're not, they're not like dogs, and in fact, dogs would not have been kept as pets at this time. So the idea of one coming out to meet him upon his return 
from battle seems odd to say the least if it's a sacrificial animal that he has in mind here. This isn't Narnia or Middle Earth, right? The, the word for meat, in fact, in Scripture is always used with reference to humans. So you might even say it's, it's about a greeting. They're coming out to greet him. The one who comes out to greet me. However, it is clear that Jephthah does not have his daughter in mind because of his reaction when his daughter does come out. You've brought me very low. He's in anguish. So Jephthah's reaction in seeing his daughter does indicate that he's not expecting to be greeted by her. It's some other person that he's expecting. So what leads many to interpret this vow as tragic? Let's start there. Let's start with what, in fact, most commentators believe. There are, first of all, the several parallels to Abimelech that we looked at last week, uh, such as the worthless friends that he hung out with, um, that he agreed to become head of Gilead, that he was willing to do something like that, to become a king in, of sorts. Uh, they highlight how the text makes no mention of the Lord raising him up. Right? That cycle that we've seen in other judges uh, is not complete here. But, but that was also true of Barak, of Gideon, and it will also be true of Samson. So are we to, to suggest that all, all of their callings was questionable? I realize that Gideon and Samson have a more elaborate calling in their narratives, but nonetheless, these arguments about missing elements from the cycle that we have kind of, uh, where we've seen because pieces of that cycle in each different judge narrative, it's, it's problematic because really from every judge after the first judge, there's some element missing from that cycle. It's just not a consistent cycle. It's not it's not a pattern you can bank on. And so I don't think you should make any judgment calls based upon what's missing in the text. Probably, though, the greatest challenge has to do with the language that the author uses. But let's begin with Jephthah tearing his clothes. Many associate that with mourning. Right? He tears his clothes as soon as she comes out. In Job 1.20, you have Job mourning the loss of his family, the loss of his children. We see the whole nation, however, doing their, tearing their clothes and sitting in sackcloth and ashes in Esther chapter 4, verse 1, as a sign of repentance. And we also see Paul and Barnabas tearing their clothes when the people of Lystra bowed down before them in Acts 14, 14. So it's not a sign of mourning merely. It is that, but it's also it's a sign of anguish and distress. Not necessarily mourning. But then when you get to the end, verse 40, doesn't that seem to clarify whether this is mourning or not? It says year after year, or sorry, the daughters of Israel went year by year to lament the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite four days in the year. You say, well, lament, that's not very ambiguous. That's a pretty precise term. So I think I know what they're doing here. They're, they're mourning the death of Jephthah's daughter. It seems to settle it. There's only one problem, and it's a pretty big one. The, the word in Hebrew is quite rare. In fact, it's, it's so rare, it only occurs three other times, and in none of those other occurrences is it translated lament. In fact, we've seen it in Judges chapter 5, verse 11. To the sound of musicians, this is heat, Deborah and Barak, 
to the sound of the musicians at the watering places, there they repeat the righteous triumphs of the Lord. The word repeat is the same word in Hebrew for lament. You say, well, those are drastically different in meaning. Well, it only goes downhill from there. The other two occurrences happen in Hosea, and they're with reference to the nation of Israel uh, being equated to those who would hire prostitutes. That's how the word is translated. It's got a extreme, it's got a very broad semantic domain, and it's hard to pin down. But I'd say the best translation is to is to commemorate or even to console. That's what our best lexicon, the Hebrew and Aramaic lexicon of the Old Testament, uh, it's a two-volume lexicon. Uh, that's their uh, best translation offered. In fact, if you're reading along in the NASB or, the, uh, or even the NIV, you have that translation of commemorate, not lament. And so it's frequently found in extra-biblical literature, in ancient literature, as a, a word for consoling. All right, so now you have some other options of what's taking place here in this, in this uh, yearly festival or this yearly commemoration. I, there's still one more challenge, and it's the greatest one of all. It has to do with the word for burnt offering. In Hebrew, that's ola. The word is almost, it almost always refers to a non-human sacrifice, sacrificing animals as a whole burnt offering, to not, to not hold back any portion of that offering, but to give it all as a burnt offering to the Lord. There are two occurrences of the word, however, in the Old Testament, there's Genesis 22, where Abraham is called to offer up Isaac as a burnt offering. And you also have the king of Edom in 2 Kings chapter 3, verse 27. But in all the other occurrences, literal, of which there are 286, <clears throat> it's taken in a literal sense, never figurative. That is the greatest challenge to taking this passage in a figurative way, because it would mean that this is a unique use of the word. Um, however, it's not unique in, in extra-biblical literature. In, uh, in the apocryphal book, Sirach 35, verse 6, it refers to whole burnt offerings of the righteous who are refined by fire. So it's used figuratively there. Uh, the Levitical law provided valuation of humans in order to redeem a child by paying a ransom. That was in Leviticus chapter 27, verses 1 through 7. And so I do see something similar here to what we find in uh, of the, the use of the word wave offering, uh, where every occurrence is in a literal sense that's an animal sacrifice to be offered up as a wave offering. You know, the, the priest would, would wave the, the smoke towards the Lord. Now, there's every occurrence except one is to be taken literally. There's one that's figurative. And that has to do with uh, Numbers chapter 8, verses 11 through 15, where we, speaking to Aaron, it says, And Aaron shall offer the Levites before the Lord as a wave offering from the people of Israel, that they may do the service of the Lord. Then the Levites shall lay their hands on the heads of the bulls, and you shall offer the, the one for a sin offering and the other for a burnt offering to the Lord to make atonement for the Levites. And you shall set the Levites before Aaron and his sons and shall offer them as a wave offering to the Lord. Thus you shall separate the Levites 
from among the people of Israel, and the Levites shall be mine. And after that, the Levites shall go in to serve at the tent of meeting when you have cleansed them and offered them as a wave offering. Okay, so think about this. Imagine the shock, if this is to be taken in a literal way, of the Levites as they're sitting here listening to the law being read to them. Now you're to take the, the it's a tribe of Levites and offer them as a wave offering before the Lord. And it's, it's figurative. It's to be offered to the service, to be wholly given to the Lord in service. That's what the Levites, uh, that's, that was their task. The entire tribe of Levites would have literally gone up in smoke if this was to be taken literally. So the common practice of the nations also should be taken into account because they practice sacrificing infants, not older children. So Molech, was, you, they were given infant children. Um, clearly, Jephthah's daughter is older. She's running out to greet him. She's um, mourning with her friends about her virginity. She's, got, she's a young adult right? at this point. She's older. Scripture uh, oftentimes refers to this as passing through the fire. In 2 Kings 16.3 and 21.6, it, it just translated burned, that the, that the kings burned them. Um, and so the language of the nations is not the same language that's used here. This is, this is Levitical sacrificial language. It's not equal to, at least the, the author's not using the same language as the nations. If he wanted to say that Jephthah was becoming like the nations in his practice, then he, he, he would have used different language. Wouldn't have made it so confusing. So the nations um, also offered their children during a time of need. They never made vows like, I'll, I'll offer my child if you do this for me. That, you don't find that um, in practice. They did it always um, as a, during a time of need as a means of coercing Molech to do something for them. And then you also have the problem of her response to the, to the vow, or her response in, its, in the end here, verses 38 through uh, 40. She mourns her virginity. To die be odd, I think, to say the least. You're about to die, and you say, well, give me two months to mourn my virginity. Why wouldn't she simply mourn her death? Why isn't that the language that's used? So let's think about this in, in other ways. What leads me to believe that this is not such a tragic vow is that one, we said Jephthah's, there's no tendency to being rash. He's calculated and, and careful. He's patient. He knows scripture really well, which, by the way, you would think he was familiar with the annulment of vows that's allowed in Leviticus chapter 5, verses 4 through 7. He, he, if he made an unlawful vow, he's not to carry it out. You also have the provision of redemption of those who had been vowed as individuals uh, to, to be redeemed back, Leviticus 27, as I mentioned earlier. We saw that Jephthah, only, this is his only child, which is unique in comparison to some of the other judges we've read who had multiple wives and many children. So he's being faithful here. <clears throat> you have the problem, well, the good uh, providence that God's spirit has come upon him. That's a significant thing not to miss. 
and then what takes place afterwards, there is no mention of him putting her to death. It says he fulfilled his vow. And in fact, it says right after that, and she knew no man. She never knew a man. And she was a virgin, as some translate it. I think, um, in, and this is in verse 39. And at the end of two months, she returned to her father who did to, with her according to his vow that he had made. She had never known a man. Now, you, you may know in the Hebrew, there, there's not punctuation. Right? It's all just strung together. The punctuation came much later. And in fact, in your English translations, you'll, you'll find different paragraph breaks, different periods, different version trans- punctuation used. The King James Version translates it this way. Uh, I'm not, I'm not going to read the, the quote from the King James Version, but as far as the punctuation, it would say this. Who did with her according to his vow that he had made, colon, she never knew a man, period. In other words, they're saying that the, the vow that he made was regarding her virginity, that this, this was the explanation of the vow that Jephthah made. And I think that's the appropriate translation. So who did with her according to his vow that he had made, comma, or you might say comma, that is, she had never known a man. This was a a sad reality because Jephthah's only child now cannot be married and have children and, and carry on his lineage. That's why he's so disturbed. That's why he's so distressed and in anguish. And so it makes more sense if she's been dedicated to the Lord to serve in the temple. She's wholly devoted to to temple service. Uh, We know there were women serving in the temple. Exodus 38.8 says he made the the basin of bronze and its stand of bronze from the mirrors of the ministering women who ministered in the entrance of the tent of meeting. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 22, now Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. There were ministering women. Part of Eli's uh, son's problem was that they were laying with these women. And so we know women served at the temple entrance and Jephthah's dedication of his daughter would be something similar in that case to Hannah's dedication of her son Samuel. In 1 Samuel 1.11, and she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no race. It's a parallel touch his head. And so this, it's, it's, a, it's a parallel, I think. And I keep coming back to Hebrews. Right? I've, I've mentioned it pretty much every week. Hebrews 11.32. What more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets. You can't take that lightly. Scripture is never negative about Jephthah's character or about the vow that he made. And we have plenty of passages that condemn human sacrifices. We know God abhorred the practice, and yet here, God is silent. There's only commendation of Jephthah. So I find it hard to believe that God would so clearly approve his faith and yet leave his murderous idolatry uncondemned. Some would say, well, what about David? You know, you have an example there of someone who 
repeatedly is commended as being a man after God's own heart, and yet he was an adulterous murderer who was in the end forgiven and then commended. But there are several differences that have to be addressed if you want to use David as an example because his actions are clearly condemned in Scripture. He repents himself of those actions. They're condemned by the prophet Nathan. Jephthah's actions are never condemned. Psalm 51 is a retelling of his repentance, of David's repentance. Jephthah never repents. In fact, he says, I must uphold my vow to the Lord that I've made. Right? He believes he's honoring the Lord by upholding it. So what can we learn from the faith of both Jephthah and his daughter? Right? We too are urged to be a living sacrifice. Romans 12, 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual way to discern. Not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So I would ask you, have you upheld the vows you made when you joined this church? I encourage you to take some time this week to reflect upon that, what the Westminster Confession, chapter 22, reflects upon. This idea of, the, uh, of taking a vow and, and honoring that lawful vow. There's scripture proofs um, along with it. I encourage you to use that with your family this week. Read it even alongside the five vows that you've taken as members of the church that the PCA requires. I am out of time to get to the very last section, but it's, it's a brief one, so we will touch upon that at the beginning of our sermon next week. If you really want to fill in that last blank, it's conflict, Jephthah's conflict, chapter 12, verses 1 through 7. But let's just consider our conclusion here. Jephthah's character helps us to see the transformation that follows the faith of every believer. Someone who can, who can have a sordid past and yet be transformed, be changed, have a great knowledge of Scripture and, and honor the Lord through a commitment. Right? It should inspire us to making and keeping our own vows. Not that we should be making vows all the time, they're, they're significant. They should, we should be making them to our wives or our husbands or spouse, making them to the church. Right? There are very few things that, that we would say a vow is, is commended for, but once you've made that vow, you do what you can to honor it, to uphold it, unless it's unlawful. However, not even Jephthah's vow can compare to the covenant vow that our triune God made in the covenant of redemption. All right, the father committed to sending his own body of phlegm and the son committed to taking upon himself this body of flesh of living a life that we could not live and dying a death that we could not die and rising again in victory over sin and death three days later. And so every vow points to that ultimate vow. In fact, it's only because of his willingness to uphold that vow that any of us is able to honor the vows that we've made before him. So let's look to him now in gratitude. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your 